0: Come back together to be reminded of the God that calls us to that mission, of the God who truly has come to seek us and to save us and to help us. So we are continuing our series in our Psalms, which is what we have titled the Songs or the Psalms of Ascent uh, we are studying this section of Psalms that would serve as the hymnal of God's people, the Old Testament people of God, the, uh, the people called Israel, as they are now looking to uh, journey into Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts that they would participate in on an annual basis. Uh, this whole process began around Psalm 120, and it's going to end right at Psalm 134. And so we are going verse by verse, uh, uh, book by book, chapter by chapter, if you will, Psalm by Psalm, looking at this as we are preparing our own hearts for a feast. Uh, this is the the in this morning we are in Psalm 129. Uh, we are preparing our hearts and our minds for the message. Um, And as we do that, and as you turn there to Psalm 129, I want you to tell you, I'm often perplexed at how the memories of the past are often the impetus that we have for begrudging the present. We look back at the past and we have this nostalgia, we have this idea that the past was always better. And we utilize that and we, we make that a way in which we look at the present and we just begrudge where we are. We begrudge the place that we are. Instead of looking at the past and remembering the past from being the very place from which we can launch all of our hopes in the present. You know, if God can be faithful in what He has been in the past, then therefore God will be faithful to us in the present and the future. But oftentimes what we discover is when we look at the past and we see God's faithfulness in it, we often bring ourselves into the present and we begrudge where we are. And my, my question to you, faith family, is ought we in light of new adversities, ought we in light of the new changing challenges, Ought we ought not to be a people who are able to look at our past, not as mere nostalgic reflections that cause us to desire to go back, but ought they not to be the very truths that embody us to move forward? The very things that we ought to look at and go, wait, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Because our God then is our God now, And our God will, who is, will be our God forevermore. Amen. He was and is and is to come, never changing. So faith family, I want us to see how this psalm that we're going to look at this morning is going to take us back while simultaneously launching us forward. That if we were to be God's people and we were to be the nation of Israel at this time, we would be traveling to Jerusalem, looking at this place as we are going to celebrate a feast, and we would be looking at our past and looking at the hard times of our past, but we would allow that to push us toward the hope of our future. Now, I know I've said this every time I've got up and preached from this uh, in this series that you might say, well, I'm not Israel and we're not going to Jerusalem. Well, that is true in a sense, but in another sense it's not true. That we are the people of God who Israel was. We are the Israel of our day. The church are the people of God. The chosen people that God has used in this place. And that we might not be going to Jerusalem in Israel in the geographical sense. But we are going to a new Jerusalem. And we are headed to a new feast. And because we are headed to a new feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And a new Jerusalem that God will bring upon this earth. Then we too can look at this and say wait. Wait. Are we not able even more than they because what do we have in our past that that was in their future? We have in our past that was in their future a cross. We have in our past that was in their future an empty tomb. We have in our past that was in their future a resurrected Savior. We have in our past that was in their future a man who is now sitting at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf, knowing the truth of, the, of the, who Jesus is, what He has done, and who we are in light of that church. I say that we have something to sing about. That's just what I'm thinking. So what I want us to do this morning... I want us to see how this song will take us back while simultaneously launching us forward as we acknowledge that our help in the past is our hope for the future. Turn with me to Psalm 129. I'll read all eight verses. If you'll follow through with me in your Bibles. Many times they have persecuted me from my youth up. Let Israel now say, many times they have persecuted me from my youth up, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, they lengthened their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He is cut into the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like grass upon the housetops, which withers before it grows up with which the reaper does not fill his hand or the binder of sheaves his bosom. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Great God, gracious God and King. I pray that today's preaching will help us. will equip us to be your people. And Father, if there is one in here who does not know you, I pray that they would come to know you before it's eternally too late. And Father, if there is one in here who is looking at a future without hope, yet we call ourselves your children, may we reflect back on the truths of all that you've done so that we can know of all that you're doing. And we can be assured of all that you're going to do. Bless the reading and the preaching of your word. Be with your servant this morning as I preach it. And I pray that your spirit will go before me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are going to start in verses 1 through 4 as we are going to see the psalmist praise the past. The psalmist is going to praise the past. And I want you to notice that the psalmist begins pretty abruptly. He begins with this cry or this plea. Many times they have persecuted me from my youth up. And the fact that it is repeated in verse 2 lends itself to a psalm that fits more uh, like an invitation or a response type of psalm. Now we saw this back in Psalm 124. Do you remember that? In Psalm 124, it says, Had it not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, Had it not been the Lord who was on our side. We have seen this before, and it indicates the place of this psalm may very well be among the gathering of God's people in a worship setting, just like ours, when the leader would stand up and state what he wants the people to say before he tells them what he wants them to say. It, it, it reminds me of the way we catechize children, the way I catechize even my own children, by reading the question and then having them repeat the question back to us. That is what we often do. I would say, uh, my children would be in the car and we'd be driving and, and I would read, who is God? And my children would repeat to me, who is God? Or I'd say, what is the chief end of man? And my, re- my children would repeat back to me, what is the chief end of man? And I would say the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And then my children will repeat back to me, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that's what's happening here. The psalmist the, is gathered. We we believe that the psalmist may, in this kind of psalm, be gathered with the church, and the whole community is saying, Many times they have persecuted me from my youth up. And let Israel now say, and then everybody would repeat it, let many times they have persecuted me from my youth up it's almost as this the psalm, the psalmist is 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 getting them started if you will hey let me remind you of what we're going to sing but who is the me here many times they have persecuted me from my youth up well 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 that was country i went straight to that it says many times they have persecuted me from my youth up let israel now say many times they have persecuted me So it seems to be, ladies and gentlemen, that it is a corporate gathering speaking about the unity of God's people, the corporate of God's people, none other than Israel. God's people who have been persecuted many, many times. It is the chosen people of God that when we go back and we see God choose this nation, who we would find who began inside of none other than Abraham, we begin to see the covenants being worked out inside of this, and it is God's covenant people who have been persecuted, and these are the me. This is the me that is speaking. And this is the only command in this entire psalm. The only command in the entire psalm is, Let Israel now say... Let Israel now say. So we know that it is Israel that's who is going to be singing this. And what, it is that, what is it they are to say? By who? By the way, who are they persecuted by? Many times, they have persecuted me from my youth up. So Israel is singing together, they who have persecuted. And I believe that the they here is the enemies of God's people. And that's the reason it's generic they, too, too numerous to name. If you were to go back and you were to study the history of God's people, we would have a litany of people described for us. And he says to us, and the reason that I think it's, it's corporate and it's, it's more than one, it says many times they have persecuted me from my youth up. What does that mean? Well, when you go back and you study the prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel specifically, the youth of Israel seems to indicate the time Israel was in Egypt and in the Exodus. So it seems to be this idea of looking back on the history of Israel since the beginning of Egypt and all the way through the, uh, the, this time of the Exodus, all the nations that have come against him. And even if it is before the Exodus, any historical review would demonstrate the narrative from which the covenant descendants of Abraham have endured affliction throughout history. God's people throughout history have been persecuted. God's people throughout history have been hated. Beloved, I hope we hear what the psalmist is doing. The psalmist is saying that out of the miseries of the past... We are discovering the music of the people in the present. Out of their sorrow, we have a sonnet. You know, as I was sitting here studying that, I was thinking, it's it's the biblical version of the old country music. I'm talking old country. Not this new stuff. I don't even think it's country music. I'm talking old country music. The two that automatically came to my mind as I was studying this. Old Hank Williams, not Junior, Hank Williams Sr. There's a tear in my beer, because I'm crying for you, dear. You are on my lonely mind. Just so sad. And then my mom's favorite, old Patsy. Patsy Cline, y'all remember that? Crazy. What is she crazy about? I'm crazy for feeling so lonely. Oh, my gosh, man. Country music. So sad. You're sitting there. I mean, even if you ain't drinking a beer, you're drinking like a cup of coffee crying. (laughs) Drinking your sparkling water. I'm so sad. That's kind of what's going on here. Modernity hasn't lost it modernity hasn't lost it we still do it today i was listening to a song the other day that my daughter was singing and here's the words of the song well listen well good for you you look happy and healthy not me if you ever cared to ask good for you you're doing great out there without me baby god i wish i could do that i lost my mind i've spent the night crying on the floor of my bathroom but you're so unaffected i really don't get it but i guess good for you so sad The church isn't lost on it. When peace like a river. What? Attendeth my way. What? When sorrows like sea billows roll. You with me now, ain't you? We haven't lost it. There's something about sorrow that leads a heart to sing. There seems to be something in the human heart that wants to sing in the midst of grief. There's something in the human heart that wants to sing about it. And here, this is what's happening in this place. The psalmist is looking back on all the sorrow of the past, and then it's repeated. I want you to repeat it. That's what it says. I want you to repeat it. Many times that they have persecuted me for my youth up. Let Israel say, many times they have persecuted me for my youth up. It's almost like they're repeating it, but did you notice the addendum? Did you notice the addendum? Because if all we do is stop where these songs often stop, right? If all we do is stop at the sea billows rolling then ladies and gentlemen, we are going to be depressed because of the past. But notice what the addendum is. It says, many times they have persecuted me from my youth up, yet they have not prevailed against me. It is well, it is well with my soul. Right, that's the truth. That's the reality. Many times they have persecuted me, but they have not prevailed. It says Israel is reflecting on her past pain. Israel, this nation, is reflecting on her present trials. She can remember the gracious truth that no matter what has come against her, it has not prevailed against her. It's much like the church in the early years who, went under, who underwent the trials and the tribulations, yet all of it didn't prevail. Instead, what did the trials and tribulations do? It became the very seed of the growth of God's people. One author writes it like this. Babes in grace were cradled by opposition. No sooner is a child born in this world that the dragon comes after it. This is our problem with raising our children the way we do. We're raising our children as though there is not a dragon after him. There is not a dragon after her. We're raising our children as though this is the place in which they are to find peace and joy and happiness. They're to find it in all their circumstances, and their 401Ks, and their health plan, and all their career opportunities, and in their education. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you, the moment your child was born, there was a dragon after it. And listen to me, that's the reason we raise knights. We raise knights in order to fight dragons not to sit on a couch and act like it. We, we raise warriors for the gospel. But neither, here's the truth, although there is a dragon after it, neither, in oppo, neither did the opposition, the they, or has the dragon prevailed resilience in the face of persecution has always been the foundation of God's people whether it be Israel or the church resilience in the midst of tough times I was just talking to the leadership team this morning as we were sitting down conversing about this and this is what you'll be hearing a little bit about tonight Christ the King, I believe we are somewhere Somewhere, somewhere particular in our church right now. And we have a choice to make. We have a choice as a community, as a congregation to make. Either we're just going to die off, or we're going to fight. We're either just going to give up, or we're going to move forward. And whichever decision that we make, it's going to be evident based upon how we live. And it is here, that, right here in the midst of this, that I imagine a type of forte in the music. Maybe some cymbals are playing or a slight crescendo in the music. Because this is and has always been the testimony of God's people, old and new. Beloved, looking back has always been the ground of hope for God's people. It's not in themselves, it's not in their strength, it's not in their intelligence, but it has always been in the fact that they have a God who is faithful to preserve His people. God is faithful. That's exactly what's happening in here. So look at verse 3. The plowers plowed upon my back. They lengthened their furrows. a a much more pungent picture of the persecution that comes with the image of the people undergoing the pain of the plow that cuts rows on the land to lengthen the furrows is this the idea of extending their torture extending their pain and in Exodus we discover the abuse of God's people by the hands of the Egyptians in the New Testament the Apostle Paul writes he speaks of receiving 40 lashes minus one the people of God being mistreated the people of God being afflicted by by those who hate them and by the evil one one writer would say this there is no busier plowman in all the world than the devil and you look back on your past and you can see where your back has been plowed you can see where it is linked in their furrows where the pain of your life in the past has been there Maybe some of you are there right now. Maybe you're sitting in the midst of the plowing and the furrows are being gone over you. And then in the sweeping writings of the pen, the psalmist pour out what he has been coming to all along. The Lord is righteous. He has cut into the cords of the wicked. You see the counter distinction of all the injustice. The counter-distinction to all of the plowing. The counter-distinction to all the furrowing. The counter-distinction to all the persecution, all the sorrow, all the pain. The counter-distinction to all of it. For the first time we come to the Lord who is righteous, demonstrated by His faithfulness in the provision and the protection of His people. You see, to cut the cords relates us back to the plow that was used in verse 3. The cords would be those cords that hold the animal to the plow and the cutting of those cords would be releasing them from the plow which is what? Releasing them from the pain. Releasing them from the suffering. Releasing them from the guilt. Releasing them from the chains. Releasing them from the bonds. Releasing them from the pain. Releasing them from all that because whom the sun sets free is free indeed. Do you hear me church? I can preach this if you want me to. Right now I'm just kind of going through it. Beloved, God is righteous, so He must and always will come against sin. And in His righteousness, no amount of pain poured upon His people will be able to persist before His righteousness. The cord of the wicked is cut. The cord that binds the victim is released so that the captive can be set free. Those cords that bound us have been removed, not by us, but by who? The Lord. How did the Lord cut the cord that binded us, the cords of sin? How did the Lord come about? Remember, it says He is righteous. What does His righteousness have to do with Him cutting the cords of the wicked? How does God, I wonder if these people, I know they didn't understand it fully like we fully understand it, or at least as much as we understand it, how would God who is righteous come against the cords of the wicked? How would the Lord who is righteous and loving come against that? He would do it on a cross. He would do it on a cross. He would do it on a cross by dying because what God did on the cross of Calvary was bring about His righteousness. Ladies and gentlemen, beloved, I want you to know this and you need to hear this clearly. You are a sinner. Due punishment. And and God Himself cannot allow that punishment to go unmerited because then He would not be righteous. He would not be just. He would not be good. Because for God to allow that which is evil to remain without punishment is not good. It is unjust. So God had to come and righteously deal with it with justice. And that's what He did. In Jesus, that's what He did. Remember in Psalm 127, verse 7, in Psalm 124, excuse me, verse 7, He writes, Our soul has escaped as a bird out of the snare of the trapper. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Y'all remember us studying that back in 127? You see, God demonstrates that His righteousness will come against that which breaks His own. God's righteousness will always come against sin. God's righteousness will always come against, and beloved, you need to hear this, God's righteousness will always come against those who come against His people. Always. Listen to what one pastor said. Quote, The shortest way... And I add the surest way to ruin is to meddle with a saint. Because the divine warning is he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. That's good news. Paul would write it like this. We are afflicted but not crushed. Perplexed but not despairing. Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. So I want you to look back on all of your affliction. All of your pain. Let me let me use Paul's words. Look back on your affliction. Look back on your perplexity. Look back on your persecution. Look back on your striking down. I want you to look back on all that. And I want you to know that here is the truth that God in 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 his word and in his reality of the cross has always, has always gotten his people through. And he always will. He is faithful. So this is the retrospective look of the psalmist. And now in verses 5-8, through we're going to pray for the future. We've praised the past, praised God for where He has taken us, and now we're going to pray for the future, beginning in verse 5. And this is what he says, May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. You see, a retrospective look at God's righteous faithfulness now prompts the people of God to petition Him for for continued protection and provision. That those who hate Zion... Remember, Zion is what? It is the place that represents the Lord's presence. It is the place that represents the Lord's rule. And it is the place that represents the Lord's reign. In this day, there was a location. There was a place for a people for a purpose. Zion, Jerusalem, David's city was a place. And that is where God dwelt with His people. Oh, but i got good news for you. Ever since Jesus has died, been buried, and resurrected again, there is a new temple laid ladies and gentlemen, and that is in God's people. God no longer dwells in a city. God now dwells in His people. So what are we speaking of? Those who hate Zion. Zion is that place, and the, psalm, the psalmist here calls her the city of our God, the mount for His abode. May those who bring hate to God's presence be put to shame and turned backward. That's what it says. Be put to shame and turn backward. Think of the idea of repenting. Think of the idea of being removed. Now you have a choice in being turned backward, beloved, if you are against God's people in here this morning. The turning backward is a decision. The turning backward is a reality. It's the idea of an army who has come up against God and they have found themselves against a foe they will, unable to de- they will be unable to defeat and they're forced to retreat. Oh dearly beloved, listen to me. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. Hatred of God is a soul destroying venture. So to this reality, we do not back away as God's people, but we give a heartily amen. And I want you to notice, it's not a plea, by the way, for eternity in hell here. It's a plea for them not to prosper. It's a plea for them no longer to prosper in what they're doing. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backwards. So, why do we in modernity struggle with this plea? It's amazing to me. These are the kind of passages that even unbelievers want to come to and say, see, that's not very loving. That's not very loving. It's not loving to talk about, may all those who hate you be put to shame and turned backwards. Is it? Or is it? That's not loving. Wrestle with it just for a moment in your own mind, in your own conscience. Wrestle with it. Is that loving or not loving? Well, this is where we get the nonsense that, you know, the God of the Old Testament was very harsh and the God of the New Testament is all about grace. So we ought to be more about grace than all about laws and all these things and all these rules. As though there are two different gods and God is different in these places. Why do I think we in modernity struggle with such a plea? I was listening just the other day. Do you know how much we're talking about justice today? It's an adjectival justice, but it's justice. What do I mean by that, an adjectival justice? I mean there's an adjective attached to justice now. Right? Whether it be social justice or racial justice or equality justice or this justice or that justice it's always a descriptive type of justice but in all of our talk about justice we have no clue what it means to be just that's of course until we are the ones who demand and desire it that's of course until somebody does something to us and we want what we want justice I want you to imagine standing before God who is just and right and thinking that we can accuse him of injustice or wrong. You know, we stand before God and we're gonna say, you know what, God, I, you know, we don't we don't say it like this because that's a little bit too harsh, but we we kind of play like this. Well, when I when I get to heaven, I got some questions. When I get to heaven, i got some questions. You know what? We sneak in there as though you're, you're owed something. God, how are you going to? Who do you think you are? Who do we think we are? We have so lowered God to being our buddy, our friend. Just heard a guy pray this the other day. Yo, God. Yo, God. Bro, you're talking to the creator of this universe that deserves a level of honor and respect and fear i've never in in all my life seen the nonsense that i'm seeing today and when you read the the, the bible do you sense that hey yo god hey man we have lost our minds As one author said, we have educated ourselves into imbecility. And this is what I want to say. In every biblical term that I can, woe to you. Those who hate good ought to be brought to justice. I unequivocally say that. Those who hate good ought to be brought to justice. And regardless if our legal system will do it, I can assure you of this, dear brother and sister, there will come a day when each of us will stand before God and we will see justice. Those who reject the love of God, if it be true, ought to be turned back and turned away. Those who reject God for what He is ought to be turned back. They ought to be turned away. Those who, those who are hating good, it's crazy, isn't it? I mean, legit, like legit crazy what we are doing in our day. We're loving that which is evil, hating that which is good. In our modern day missional vernacular, in, our, in the words in which we use in missional terminology, it almost seems like we ought to desire the prosperity of the wicked. How can we do this? Let me ask you this. Do our communities prosper if wickedness prospers? Will our communities prosper if wickedness prospers? if evils prospers? Then how in the world can we as God's people desire it to prosper? It just doesn't make good sense. We ought to desire God's people to prosper in the midst of it We ought to be a people who are constantly looking at ways in which we can do it, but we ought not to be a people who who keep the nonsense that that we ought to want the communities who are doing evil to truly prosper. We ought to pray for those who hate God in His presence. We ought to pray for them to be put to shame in their sin, turn back into retreat, or either turn back into repentance. So here are the two options. If you are evil, you hate God and you hate His presence, either climb back into the darkness from which you came or come into the light that Christ has provided for those who would place their faith in Him. But I would say that we ought to in no way desire for their prosperity. How can we? so much for our modern day church huh and the song continues listen to what it says and like grass on housetops which withers before it grows up with which the reaper does not feel his hand or the binder of sheaves his bosom it's a metaphor to display the vanity of those who will hate him grass on a housetop is up and down quickly sprouts and seems to flourish only to die away at the penetrating sun because it has no nourishment for its growth. We know something about that, don't we? Look, if any of y'all had a garden this summer, y'all know something about that because this heat is relentless. This heat is relentless. I was gone for a month in Uganda. All my flowers dead, yo. Hey, let me tell you something. Well, most of my flowers, most of my flowers, the I'm talking about the herbs, the ones I was supposed to be taking care of. My mint, you know, that mint and pineapple drink that I always like to drink, my mint's gone. It's fried. It's DRT, dead right there. (laughs) Quickly sprouts. It seems to flourish, only die away at the penetrating sun. The point I'm trying to get at is there is a sun. There is a sun that is so bright and shining. In it there is no fulfillment for the harvest. The reaper doesn't even fill his hand or bind the sheaves in his bosom. Those who work in the fields would place their harvest in their bosom. They would place their harvest here amongst their chest. But here is saying that there is none to carry. Nothing but stubble in the end. They are prosperous for a time but they are transient nonetheless. As quick as it came is as quick as it goes. Reminds me of the old gardening proverb that says, soon ripe, soon rotten. Those who hate God will come to nothing. All of their flourishing will come to an end and not even fill the hand of a reaper, much less his bosom. The end of their work is likened unto the chaff which the wind drives away. And that's not all. He writes, nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Now you may be asking, what is, this non, what is this kind of talk? I don't understand it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, during the harvest, what would happen is men would bless each other in the name of the Lord. We see this in Ruth chapter 2. I'm going to turn there very, uh, very briefly. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. But Ruth chapter 2. Um, Many of you know the story of Ruth. She was left without a husband. Her husband had died. Her father-in-law had passed away. Her and Naomi are together. She goes into this field to glean. And as she's going into this field to glean, Ruth chapter 2, verse 4, it says, Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to his reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. So what is happening? This man, uh, Boaz, is is coming to this place where he has this harvest and he is blessing them because they have been blessed and they are going to bless him back. Beloved, we've been discussing this throughout this series. The blessing of the Lord is the greatest gift that we can experience in this life. The blessing of the Lord is the greatest gift that we can experience. The goodness of God in all the areas of life. And of course a man who hates the Lord and be put to shame find little in receiving the blessing and therefore little in giving of the blessing. And you, you have to witness the truth, right? Those who are His were plowed by our enemies with temporary suffering. But in the end we discover freedom and justice. And those who plowed evil discover temporary rewards but in the end we'll discover torment and shame. It's a song here for God's people who share in their suffering together to praise God because we also will share in His glory together. We share in suffering, but we can share in glory. Tonight we're going to gather and we're going to eat. Probably eat pretty good. And we're going to look back on our past and probably share in some of the suffering, but we're going to share in some of the glory. Because see, we as God's people know that who is faithful, God is faithful. Who is righteous, God is righteous. And we know that in all of our suffering of the past that God has brought us through, we are here as His church, as His people, and we know that He is faithful in it. And we can celebrate God's goodness. And so, ladies and gentlemen, as we continue our journey this week to our new Jerusalem, may we be a people who can reflect on our sufferings with the truth that the sufferings of this world are not to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. We come and we ask for God's favor that the unrighteous would not sustain prosperity, but we would come to shame and would be turned back by God's righteousness. And I, my hope and my prayer is this, ladies and gentlemen, it is this in the midst of this, and I know this is hard for some of you to hear because you've been raised in a, in, a, in a church setting that has told us that, you know, it's not good to say these things. I don't want the wicked to prosper. I don't want evil to prosper. I want you to turn from your wicked ways and turn to God and repent and come to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Or I want you to face the reality of your unrighteousness evil and wickedness and to face what it means to be against God I don't want you to prosper I want you to know what it means to be God's people we can be the very opposite of those who hate God instead of a temporary harvest that will soon fade May we experience the eternal blessings of a God who is good. So we are able to rejoice in the truth that good seed bears good fruit. That whatever our hands find to do will be for the glory of God and for the good of our neighbor. That we, as His church, would be the extension of His blessing to the world around us. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. For his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in His law he will meditate day and night. He will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth in his fruit in its season, whose leaves also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. But the ungodly are not so, for they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. We can be these people. For, beloved, we are reminded that it is by his wounds that we have been healed. So we cry, may peace like a river attendeth my way when sorrows like sea billows roll. Because whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, do you remember this? Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come. Let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed His own blood for my soul. Beloved, I look on the face of my brothers and sisters in Christ who we have journeyed with for a lengthy time now. For many of you, it's been a decade, over a decade that we have journeyed together. And we can look back on some of the pain and some of the suffering. Very little of us, I think, have underwent a persecution like this. I don't know of any of you who have undergone slashes. Any of you all been whipped or chained or beaten yet for the gospel? Hold on. It may be coming. I do, know, I do know there are people in this community who have possibly lost jobs or not been promoted because of their belief in their faith that's a form of persecution that's a form of that I know that some of you have lost family members and friends because of the faith that you have I know that some of you may have been talked bad about on Facebook Ooh, may have been a few unlikes I ain't even got a Facebook account no more. That's how many friends unfriended me. I'm kidding. But when I look into his word and I'm reminded of his righteousness and his goodness, I have a choice to make. In my walk, in my life, if I want to experience the glories of my Christ, I am required to experience the sufferings of my Christ. Can we be His people? Can we this week really focus on this? That as the past, as we look upon the past and see how far God has brought us, may we proclaim that in the present. And may we live for that in the future because we know that He is righteous and faithful to bring us through and that we know the prosperity of God's people is true. Let us stand to our feet in honor of God's Word as we prepare our hearts now for this Lord's Supper. If you're with us this morning and you're visiting with us or you're coming from another church, uh, we participate in the Lord's Supper every week. And the reason we do is because after we hear the preaching of God's word, we as God's people will not want to be reminded. Well, number one, we see it in the Bible. We think that the church participated in the Lord's Supper every week as we understand it in the Bible. Every time they gathered, it seemed that they were uh, eating this meal together. So we think it's it's healthy. Number two, it always points us back to the reality that we need him. His body and his blood demonstrates his death, his burial, his resurrection. We know it, it demonstrates his new covenant with us. And so we, we participate in these elements to remind us of all that he's done and to remind us that we couldn't have done it anyway. To remind us that God doesn't, God doesn't ignore justice because of love but because of love, God was just. And in his cross, we see his justice and his love meet for those who would trust and believe in him. So if you're here and you're an unbeliever, I want to thank you for coming and worshiping with this church as we have, we're trying to understand what it means to be God's people, what it's called to be God's people. If you're an unbeliever in here, we would call you to repentance and faith, obviously. We would call you not to be an enemy with God, not to stand in his way, not to stand in his, um, in, in his path. And we would call you to faith, and we would call you to repentance. And the demonstration of that repentance, by the way, is the faith that you have. And the faith that you have is to be demonstrated through baptism, and we would call you to be baptized. Because, not because baptism saves you but because baptism is the example, it's the demonstration, it's the picture of what it means to die to yourself and to be raised anew. So we would call you to faith in Christ. If you're a believer in here and you're not a member of our church, we would call you to participate in the Lord's Supper with us. Obviously, if you're not a believer, this is not a supper for you to participate in, because not because we don't want you to. God knows we want you to, but because you have selected. You have self-selected to push away. So we would ask for you not to participate in the elements if you're an unbeliever. You're more than welcome, by the way, to walk up to the table and to watch the elements and to be in the procession with us, but we would just ask for you not to participate in the elements because they are holy and to be set apart. And it is for your health and for your sake and for our sake as well. But if you're a believer in Christ, regardless of your church membership, we would call you to come to this table. But before we do, we we don't want to come to this table in an unworthy manner. We we want to be reverent, and we want to come to this table in a worthy manner. So hearing the word that has just been preached, knowing that even my own conscience has been convicted of sin, so we come just for a few moments in quiet reflection repenting of our sin asking God once again to forgive us so that we come to this table and participate we would know that we have done so in a way in which God would be honored and glorified and by the way just for the record if there is someone who has ought against you or if there is somebody that you need to forgive brothers and sisters I would ask that you would do that before participating in these elements For that is a warning that we would not come to the table with awe in our heart. So church, let's go before our great God and King together. Let us pray to Him for forgiveness.